Hello, and welcome to The Corporate Casket, a bi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We will discuss any and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and businesses that have a lot to hide. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Synanon. So this script came heavily requested to me by one person in particular, which is Ali, who's my main researcher. I've done a few videos about schools or rehab centers gone wrong by now, but when she was digging through this, one name cropped up a couple times as a source to all these issues, Synanon. You guys remember the Elan school, the places that encourage this type of like weird group therapy where you just straight up crap on the other person that they're there for help supposedly and make them hate themselves enough to change? Well, Synanon basically invented that. They are the granddaddy of these types of places, When we saw this sentence on their Wikipedia page, we knew it was episode time. Synanon disbanded in 1991 due to members being convicted of criminal activities, including attempted murder and retroactive loss of its tax-free status with the Internal Revenue Service due to financial misdeeds, destruction of evidence and terrorism. It has been called one of the most dangerous and violent cults America has ever seen. So needless to say, Today's episode is going to be a bit of a ride. I will put a trigger warning right here at the beginning to let you know that there will obviously be mentions of violence and very brief mentions of this cult abusing animals on two separate occasions. There's a whole portion of this video dedicated to just their violence. So I'll remind you again when we get to that part. But with that being said, let's get into it. There are far more pathetic sights around than some kid running around the street shooting milk sugar into his arm? What about paraplegics? What about people that are really in trouble? Synanon started as a drug rehabilitation center founded by Charles E. Diedrich Sr. or Chuck in 1968 in Santa Monica, California. The name was chosen when a member blurred the words symposium and seminar together. I've got no idea how that ends up as Synanon, but the name is the least of our concerns. Now, Charles himself has a pretty interesting history. According to one source, Diedrich was born in Ohio in 1913. At age four, when his father died in an auto crash, his mother, an accomplished pianist, made him the family male figure and her favorite. At age eight, his youngest brother died of influenza and Diedrich felt guilty and responsible. He would never bond with kids again, including his own until they became adults. At age 12, his mother remarried and Diedrich went on a jealous rage, turning to drinking and rebel rousing. He flunked out of Notre Dame for lack of effort and worked for the Mellon family. He married, but drinking ended it. He was saved by meningitis in the 1940s by the discovery of penicillin. It left a droopy eye and a facial tick. He decided to move to Santa Monica and become a beach bum. He got a job at Hughes Tools. He remarried, but alcohol did in that marriage too. He was found passed out on a kitchen floor and was told, fatso, if you do not go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you will die. Dietrich became an AA favorite speaker and went to an AA meeting every day. During a bout of paranoia where he could not leave his room, he read Emerson's Self-Reliance and using it as a Bible, he quit his job to devote full time to cleaning up other alcoholics. He existed on a $35 unemployment check and charity from others. He volunteered for a Dr. Keith Dittman LSD experiment and he felt he had a cathartic breakthrough and now understood the world and the good and the bad were the same. He studied on his own in a library and his AA speeches changed from typical religious overtones to a psychological slash philosophy slant. 
He gathered his own following in AA, and after a time of meetings at apartments, they rented a small store in seedy Venice. The original name was the Tender Loving Care Club. They played the game in which anyone was allowed to say anything true or not to someone to cause an effect. Only the threat of violence was prohibited. It was a game because one being gamed could turn the game on another. They survived by begging for stale food from catering trucks, hookers doing tricks and donations. For a shower, a hose ran through a window. This tender loving care club became of course, Synanon. Now, you guys know how I feel about qualifications here. I do get really upset when I hear about former MLMers founding a supplement company when they've got no experience as a dietitian, nutritionist, none of that. Easily one of my pet peeves here. If you're not qualified to speak on a certain subject, don't teach it to others. If you want to share a personal anecdote or offer advice, I suppose that's fine. But I think that at the very least, an actual professional, whether a therapist or a trained counselor should have been there. I'm not saying Chuck was wrong for wanting to help these people, but already I feel like this game could do more harm than good. Plus it's already been said that Chuck didn't like himself very much. He didn't seem to have high self-esteem. So I feel like this could very easily have gone into him projecting and that sort of territory. That's absolutely just my opinion though. Moving on. In 1959, Synanon moved from the TLC club in Ocean Park to an old National Guard armory in Santa Monica and holy hell, did they start to grow. During this time, Synanon's program was established and started to get a good reputation. Diedrich preached, act as if, which meant do not try to reason as to what Synanon asked they do as thinking got them there. Just trust what they were told and act as if it is right. This source also states, in 1962, Diedrich moved into an empty National Guard building on the beach in Santa Monica. Neighbors complained, fearing Synanon could unleash non-recovered addicts into Santa Monica who came from other areas. I'm not sure which is correct, if it's 1959 or 1962. Most other sources say 1959, but the point I wanna make here is that they were growing. However, it seemed that officials also agreed with me here about having a professional on board for things like these because Diedrich was arrested for operating in Santa Monica without a health license and out of zone. Convicted rather than move as condition of probation, he chose to go to jail. One source reads, this made him a public hero and governor Edmund Brown Sr. signed a save Synanon bill, giving Synanon an exception from health licensing laws. Synanon was allowed to have members kick addiction cold turkey without drugs. The medical board was to establish rules for Synanon, but never did. The imprisonment made Diedrich a public martyr. Monetary donations came in from the rich and Hollywood as guys like Robert Wagner, Leonard Nimroy, and Ben Gazra came to Synanon to play the game with ex-addicts and ex-hookers. Life Magazine did a 14 page photo spread, which a congressman called The Miracle on the Beach and Columbia Pictures made a movie, Synanon, starring Edmund O'Brien, Chuck Connors, and Stella Stevens. With its sudden fame by early 1964, Synanon had also become an alternative community, attracting people with its emphasis on living a self-examined life as aided by group truth-telling sessions known as the Synanon Game. With its new wealth, they started building its first city in Marin County, Professionals, even those without drug addictions, were eagerly invited to join, provided they transferred their assets to the organization. Control over members occurred through the Synanon game. The game could be considered a therapeutic tool likened to group therapy or a social control in which members humiliated one another and encouraged the exposure of one's innermost weaknesses or both. Members were to confess in games and no secrets were allowed. And please know that I am quoting here. I do know the term that we now use is sex workers, not hookers, but that is the quote. But 
Yeah, you unfortunately heard that all right. So from pretty early on, Synodon was getting noticed and gaining power. There's records of Edgar Hoover himself saying that he believes Synodon was a lot like Alcoholics Anonymous, dated November 20th, 1964. There's another which seems to be from the Greater Petaluma Area Chamber of Commerce that states, everyone who has heard of them, heard of Synodon, was most impressed with their sincerity and determination. However, before extending out unqualified sanction and support, we would appreciate having some information on Synanon rather than what is announced in their news releases and public speeches. We are in great sympathy with their efforts as described to us by them. I don't want to say that the government wasn't investigating them, but it sure as hell doesn't seem concerning to them. Surely they knew that Synanon started as an operation without a license, and you'd think they'd be a little bit more concerned instead of just saying, hey, we'd appreciate some info on the place. Other sources speculate that it really was the Hollywood scene, the boom of Santa Monica itself, and the visits from the governor of California that propelled Synanon into popularity. Diedrich insisted recovery rates were anywhere from 80 to 100%, even though those numbers weren't confirmed. By 1965, Synanon started buying up land in Marin County until it had three sites in the county, comprising of just over 3,300 acres, making it the largest private property owner in the county at that time. And that same year, as mentioned earlier, Synanon got its own movie. How wild is that? A movie about a rehab facility. Synanon is a real corporation. Its business is junkies. Chuck Diedrich is the ex-drunk who dreamed it up and fights to keep it from becoming a nightmare. Get out of that car and shut up, stand over there. And the trailer is just something else. An actor named Edmund O'Brien starred as Diedrich, and I swear, this movie is everything you could expect from a typical 60s movie. And I mean, look, old movies, they're fantastic. Sure, I've got a soft spot in my heart for them, but you know, this one just isn't gonna be one of them. I mean, if Synanon was really trying to heal people, why portray them as screaming hysterical criminals? Disclaimer here though, maybe this trailer doesn't do the movie justice. I could be completely wrong. Point is, they were growing and definitely getting noticed. After just a few years, however, things changed a bit. As opposed to being public, well-known, popular enough for a movie, Synanon just sort of began to retreat into itself. The beginnings of the cult began and they just called it the Lifestyler. As one source explains, by 1968, the new type of Synanon membership was established, the Lifestyler. Members of this group were allowed to have jobs outside of Synanon and live outside of the Synanon community, provided they gave most of their income to the organization. This new kind of member allowed Synanon to fill its coffers with outside money that it had otherwise been reluctant to receive. After all, the organization was leaving a lot of cash on the table by declining government-funded grants. Why? Those grants stipulated that there be some kind of independent examination and verification of success rates through drug tests and the like. These were flatly rejected. This experiment with lifestylers wouldn't last long, however, as this type of member was often accused of not being committed enough to the cause. Most lifestylers washed out of the program, though some joined the ranks fully, leaving their homes behind as a show of true commitment. By 1968, the group was becoming even more isolationist, with Diedrich declaring that it would no longer graduate any of their members. This meant that no addict who kicked their addiction would be allowed to graduate to a life outside of Synanon. What little pretense the group had about helping addicts rejoin the outside world had been dropped. Synanon was now the only place to be, a narrowly focused utopian experiment that was ready to swallow you whole. And look, I've never gone through a rehab facility program for alcohol or drugs, but 
isn't the point to get you ready to build your life again. This whole attitude of once you're sober, you're part of the community forever is a little bit worrying. But Synanon with its fantastic reputation was probably trusted by these vulnerable groups just trying to get clean and move on. It's a little bit more than problematic that Synanon took the moving on part away and growing out of the habit part. The thing is, I want to believe that Chuck started off with fantastic intentions, misguided, sure, but well-intentioned. However, things went so far off the rails that Synanon was no longer a rehab facility. According to the LA Magazine, Synanon eventually operated centers up and down California, morphing into a utopian community, then a religion and a cult with more than $30 million in assets of more than 1,300 followers. True believers shaved their heads, wore overalls, and lived together at Synanon compounds, professing an almost lavish obedience to Diedrich, no matter how brutal his methods. Synanon officially labeled themselves as a church in 1974. Diedrich's movement deteriorated completely in the late 70s after his third wife dies, and he declared a policy of mass divorce and mate swapping. More than 200 couples complied. When he prohibited any more children, four women had abortions and nearly 200 men had vasectomies, all under Diedrich's instruction. Though Diedrich himself didn't have a vasectomy because as he stated, I am not bound by rules, I make them. Large-scale defections followed, as did press reports on the strange turn Synanon had taken. Its long-standing ban on violence was reversed. Recruits were mustered for the Imperial Marines and given intense training in Sinodu, a version of karate. There were rumors of an arms cache worth $300,000 of an enemy's list of beatings and death threats. The words getting around, Diedrich said at one point, don't fuck with Synanon. The thing is, when you become a cult, people tend to take notice. And I mean, sometimes they do. Not so much with Heaven's Gate, but they flew under the radar for some time. Synanon, on the other hand, had a recognizable name in the area. So for them to suddenly change policies, their stance on violence, all of that, yeah, it was a little suspicious to say the least. And now, horrifically, children were also being involved. It's bad enough that adults fell into Chuck Diedrich's trap, but they brought innocent kids along with them. One source stated, in Synanon, children eventually were raised in a hatchery and considered community children since 1966 with parental contact forever discouraged. This is an experiment giving public knowledge today, not likely to ever be tried again, except in cults where children are desired to be kept away in order to lower costs and less interfere with the adult service and bonding to the community. Many Synanon children also witnessed changing partners, as we mentioned earlier. Starting in 2000, former member Susan Richardson, as a requirement of obtaining her bachelor's degree in humanities, wrote a paper called Growing Up in Synanon. She also noted the children were exposed to a course of severe punitive practices like shaved heads, forced confessions, humiliations, and other aspects applied from Synanon's failed drug rehab. Any success Synanon had, and there was some success, it is submitted here, was based upon each member's decision to reform upon entry and the friendships, community jobs, mates provided, all establishing self-esteem, training, and meeting social needs, and not the Synanon abuse system, which in fact was counterproductive and drove many out. And yes, you did hear that all right. I feel like a lot of the research here has me just doing a variety of double takes, like babies were actually taken from their mothers and raised in a so-called hatchery. Like what kind of fuckery is this? And just to clarify, I'm not saying like adoption or, swinging or any of that is automatically cult-like behavior. That's not what this was. 
These kids weren't like being given different parents. They weren't being parented at all. Synanon stopped allowing contact with outsiders and Diedrich as all of this was getting worse and worse was abusing LSD. I swear, what is it with cult leaders and turning to drugs at some point? Even Jim Jones had good intentions when he started the People's Temple. It wasn't until it became Jonestown that he was abusing drugs and things took very dark and tragic turns. At Synanon, abused children began running away, helped by a neighbor named Alvin Gambonini. Credit to you, Alvin. I've got absolutely no idea who you are other than this, but people like these are the secret heroes behind the scenes. As for one of the heroes in front of the scenes and in front of the cameras, we have to talk about Paul Morantz. Paul, if you're watching this, and I doubt he is, he's 75 and probably has other things to do, thank you. Without Paul, this could have gone on for who knows how long. Paul Morantz, you see, is an investigative journalist and an attorney who specializes in cults, brainwashing groups, and sexual misconduct by psychotherapists. He's considered an expert in these subjects and Synanon certainly qualifies for two of them. Can't speak for the third, but I definitely say it's a brainwashing cult, at least in my opinion. One of my biggest sources for this topic has absolutely been Paul's website because he breaks everything down piece by piece, year by year. I highly recommend it if you want to read even more on Synanon. But this is how Paul got involved. In 1977 in Santa Monica, Synanon took in a woman with a pre-psychotic break and would not return her to her husband and transferred her to Tamales Bay. The husband hired attorney, Paul Morantz, who had recently finished a case against persons who had kidnapped Skid Row alcoholics and kept them on Thorazine in nursing homes in order to bill the state. Morantz and Synanon locked horns for eight years. A grand jury in Marin County, pushed by Paul Morantz, issued a scathing report in March of 1978, attacking Synanon for its child abuse and for profits that flowed to Diedrich. Weapons, threats, and also attacking authorities for their lack of oversight. Remarkably, the authorities refused to intercede. Though local newspapers and broadcast media covered the case, they were largely silenced by lawsuits from Synanon lawyers charging libel. The Associate Press did a study of Synanon's effects to discourage the press. And I'm not at all surprised to hear Synanon threaten the press. As I said, Paul's website has been one of my most used sources. Although there's some newer sources about the topic, doing a quick recap and whatnot, there's not really many articles about Synanon from that time. At least there's very few from what I found. And I'm guessing this probably explains why. But you'd think though that with this ammunition, Synanon would be shut down, right? I mean, a grand jury accused them of child abuse. So that has to count for something, right? Well. No, it doesn't. And I'm not saying, I guess like it doesn't, but this corruption ran deep. Local authorities refused to investigate after the grand jury report issued. And this caught the attention of Dave Mitchell who ran the small weekly, The Point Rays Light. Mitchell found the report rejection was led by Sheriff Lou Montanos who turned out to have been nominated for Sheriff with Synanon help and who had given gun permits to Diedrich and second in command, Dan Garrett. Mitchell developed a deep throat in the sheriff department. Art Disserheft. Fun aside here, this little weekly newspaper later earned a Pulitzer Prize for this. Other journalists who took on Synanon were LA Times reporter Nardo Zucchino and CBS's Connie Chung. Synanon's purchase of over $200,000 of weapons from a single gun store also brought media attention. Lawsuits brought by Morantz and ones by Synanon against ABC and Time Magazine ultimately turned out to be Synanon's undoing giving through legal investigation journalists access to some internal documents on violence. Synodon members were instructed in writing to physically harm others, take responsibility for it, and never reveal Synodon's involvement. 
Those who went to jail for Synanon were treated as heroes. Diedrich officially declared it a holy war. It took a lot of civil lawsuits, many represented by Paul for this to finally come to an end. A man named Dr. Cole sought $5 million in damages because they operated without a license, conducted unwarranted beatings and caused him severe emotional distress. He said he was made to have a vasectomy he didn't desire. And though he was there to end a drug dependency problem, the brainwashing made him stay for 11 years. He said he was a personal servant to Diedrich and his late wife during that time. One Mrs. Wynne asserted she had been held captive for nine days until her husband had to go and beg Synanon to release her after she'd just gone into the family planning center to calm her nerves. Apparently that's where she once obtained birth control. A superior court judge in 1978 ordered that Synanon surrendered tape recordings of conversations of members at Synanon as evidence. Diedrich of course was found on those tapes as he was heard saying, Our new religious posture is this, don't mess with us. You can get killed dead, physically dead. If that isn't a threat, I don't know what is. Horribly, he wasn't kidding either. And we're about to get into that section on their violence. And let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor, Daily Harvest. Because honestly, some days we all know it's really hard to find the motivation to cook. And you know, unless you're not depressed or an anxious noodle like I am, you may not relate to that, but I feel most of you can. And when you are a depressed, anxious noodle or you're having a bad day or whatever, even if you're having a good day, nothing really does taste better than fresh ingredients down your stomach. I know fast food, chicken nuggies, all those things, those are delicious too, but they can leave you feeling groggy or just unmotivated afterwards. And Daily Harvest changes the game with that because they deliver fresh food. And I'm talking like smoothies, flatbreads, harvest bowls and soups. It goes right to your door and it's built on organic fruits and vegetables. And it's ready when you are. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to enjoy it. So you're wasting less food as well. And they don't use any preservatives, added sugars or artificial anything. And Daily Harvest is also committed to minimizing their environmental impact because they're in the process of transitioning to 100% compostable, recyclable, plant-based and renewable fiber packaging. Daily Harvest is undeniably delicious, clean food without the prep, the mess or the cleanup. So if you wanna get started today, make sure to go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code casket to get $25 off your first box. Again, that's promo code casket for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Again, that's dailyharvest.com. This is the part where it's gonna get a little gross for a little bit. In one of the worst attacks on an outsider, Synanon members viciously beat a trucker in Badger, California on November 11th, 1977, after a benign road rage incident where the trucker supposedly cut off a car full of Sinites as they were on the highway. Diedrich reportedly shamed the four Synanon men involved for not physically attacking the trucker in retaliation. They remedied the situation by roaming the town with guns looking for the man who turned out to be a guy named Rod Aidson. Once they found Aidson, the group pistol whipped him to a pulp in his own front yard, screaming that they were going to kill him. Aidson's wife and five children could only watch on in horror. The Sinanite thugs threatened to come back for his family if he ever messed with the cult again. Morantz knew that Sinanon would not be above coming after him. And Morantz was correct. Sinanon did try to come for him. And in one of the strangest ways I think I've ever heard. In 1978, shortly after the $300,000 lawsuit for Mrs. Wynn and did Synanon members put a rattlesnake in Paul's mailbox. Oxygen's article about their videos and reports on the topic stated, 
Pomerantz was making some headway in letting the public know about what was happening with Synanon, and Chuck decided that he wanted to do away with Pomerantz, former member Selena Whitman told producers. Prior to the rattlesnake attack, neighbors saw a white van parked outside Morantz's house and wrote down the license plate number, which came back to being registered to the Church of Synanon. The same car was later spotted driving near Pacific Palisades, and when police noticed the plate number, they pulled them over. Inside were Synanon members and Imperial Marines, Joe Musico and Lance Kenton, and they were held on suspicion of involvement in the rattlesnake attack. It was no secret that Charles Diedrich wanted to at least hurt Paul Morantz, if not kill him. So Lance Kenton and Joe Musico thought up this plan and they went and found a rattlesnake. Thankfully, Paul survived the attack, but he was hospitalized for six days. A neighbor applied a tourniquet that saved his life and fire department paramedics chopped off the snake's head with a shovel, discovering that the rattles had been removed so the snake could attack without warning. And three things here. First of all, what badass paramedics fighting a snake? I wish they could have saved it, but sometimes that's just not the way it works out, especially when your fear is totally engaged. Second of all, we have some amazing neighbors in this story from those that saved Paul's life to the guy helping kids escape. And third, I guess we can add animal abuse to Synanon's list of crimes because I really doubt they humanely remove that snake's rattles. And you know, I guess I don't know how you do that, but it probably wasn't done in a humane way. But what it does show was this was an intentional thought out attempt to take Paul's life. Before Paul discovered the snake though, Diedrich fled to Europe like the coward he is. And don't worry, we will get back to him. This isn't all though. Their violence wasn't limited to two people. Remember Gam Bonini, the one who was helping the children escape? They beat him for that. They also tied a former member, Tom Cardinu, to a post and severely beat him for being an alleged spy. To add insult to injury, it was during his honeymoon that they did this. Many young teenagers who got too close to Synanon property were beaten brutally by Synanon mobs. Teeth were knocked out, believed trespassers were taken into the basements of Santa Monica Del Mar building and worked over on directions of Dr. Robson. Synanon evicted by tossing people and belongings out of apartments, even off a roof. In the summer of 1978, NBC produced a hard hitting news segment on Synanon. Following its broadcast, executives of the network and its corporate chairman received hundreds of threats from Synanon members and supporters, including letters that said, your actions place you in legal and physical peril, and we are going to teach you a lesson you will never forget. On September 21st, 1978, ex-member Phil Ritter was severely beaten by two members, causing him to fall into coma for a week. Fluid leaked into his spine, causing a near fatal case of spinal meningitis. Former Synanon president, Jack Hurst, spoke out against Synanon and found his home door open and his dog hung. If I hated Synanon before, I loathe them now. This is why Synanon has been labeled so dangerous. As horrible as so many cults are, what I think makes Synanon especially scummy is how they were several cults in one. A church, a rehab center, they bonded around violence and controlled people's lives. It's really sick. One branch of Synanon that was founded in Germany is actually still in operation to this very day. So I'm not sure what the hell Germany is doing with Synanon or if maybe things have changed over there, but their impact is undeniable. The LA Magazine wrote that, To this day, there is disagreement over whether Diedrich ordered the violence perpetrated by Synanon members or merely stroked their rage. Former Synanon attorney, Philip Burdett insists it was the latter. 
but three declarations written in 1983 by three Synanon officials in exchange for immunity from prosecution stated that Imperial Marines prepared a hit list of Synanon enemies that was approved by Diedrich's assistant, Walter Lubel. In a subsequent deposition, Diedrich claimed to have a very dim memory of 1977 due to a series of strokes, but he said, Most of what Synanon did in 1977, at least what I knew about, I approved of because as I pointed out before over and over again, I'm one hell of a good executive and not too much ever went on in an organization that I ran that I didn't approve of. I don't know everything that went on, of course. According to three declarations, Lubel was the one who directed Musico and Alan Hubbard, members of Synanon, to attack Phil Ritter and Lubel who ordered Musico and Lance Keaton, the son of jazz musician Stan Keaton, to travel to Los Angeles and plant the rattlesnake in Morantz's mailbox. The day after the attack, police arrested Musico and Kenton. A month later, Los Angeles prosecutor John Watson and 30 law enforcement officials descended on Synanon's new $1 million compound in Lake Havasu to arrest Diedrich on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. They found him, according to Watson, in a stupor, staring straight ahead, an empty bottle of Shivas Regal in front of him. He was so drunk that he had to be carried to jail in a stretcher. What an appropriate ending for Chuck, honestly. Still, even then, Synanon was massive, and so it took a massive force to take them down. It took some time, but with all these lawsuits and charges stacking up, the government finally stepped in. In the 80s, the government revoked their tax-free status, essentially ending Synanon altogether. A judge found that Synanon perpetrated a fraud upon the court when Synanon lied, destroyed tape recordings they were ordered to turn over, deceive the court, you name it. Their once positive reputation was destroyed and former members began to speak out too, according to the New York Times. By the middle of the 1980s, when the organization declared itself a religion, was condemned by the government for a corporate policy of terror and violence and was stripped of its tax exempt status, Synanon was declining in influence and prestige. Without their founder Chuck, as he was ordered not to take part in Synanon anymore and facing a $17 million charge from the IRS, Synanon floundered. Chuck somehow escaped with only five years of parole and a fine for the attempt on Paul's life, but Paul's grateful Charles tried to kill him himself. He says that Chuck was a cheap bastard who, when quoted a $10,000 price tag for a professional killer, chose the rattlesnake route. Charles died at 83 years old in 1997, six years after Synanon officially ended, in the US anyway. So seriously, what the hell's going on with that German branch? And I know, this seems like this is where the episode should end. After all, what more is there to say about Synanon? Well, this is why Ali wanted me to talk about Synanon and look into it, because not only because it was one of the worst ones out there, but because of what it inspired. As one source puts it, though not the first rehab, Synanon did much to convince the American public that addicts could be saved. It pioneered the idea of the ex-addict as drug counselor and a tough love therapy and it invented a culture of recovery to replace the culture of street junkies. Members went on to found or play key roles in establishing numerous drug treatment centers and therapeutic communities of their own, including Tum Est in Venice, Delancey Street in San Francisco, Amity in Tucson, Phoenix House in New York City, and Daytop Village in Queens, New York. In turn, graduates of those programs would go on to start their own facilities, carrying with them traces of the Synanon approach. And this is what is so, so important about Synanon and cults like it. Synanon was obviously dangerous, and yet I'd never even really heard of them until starting to do research for this episode. 
Plus, when compared to other organizations or facilities I've talked about, they seem relatively short-lived. But the damage they did is incredible. They put the tough love idea out there without any counselors or medical professionals backing their methods. Former members established their own facilities based on it, a facility that once towed the fine line between tough love and abuse, only to leap overboard and become one of the most violent cults I've had to cover. Now, I won't pretend that these facilities listed are all violent and not all are. Delancey Street is still open and they promote nonviolence and they do want their members to leave eventually. You know, they don't wanna hold people hostage. Tomb S seemed to have closed after financial troubles. Phoenix House, on the other hand, has some other issues. One 2015 Reuters report states, in November last year, OASAS suspended admissions to Bel Terre and four other Phoenix Houses of New York facilities. In a letter to Phoenix House's then chief executive in November, 2014, OASAS said Phoenix House had persistent regulatory violations and resident slash patient care concerns dating back several years. An OASAS site report on the five facilities went into graphic detail. The regulators findings at some or all facilities included use of marijuana, cocaine, heroin, and other illegal drugs. Sexual activity among residents, reports of violence and sexual assault, insufficient, inadequately trained or abusive staff, dirty premises, and lax security with residents coming and going as they wished. I'm not saying these issues are absolutely because this home was founded by someone who went to Synanon, can't know that for sure, but this tough love mindset was popularized by them without a doubt. The abuse at the Elan School, the Judge Rottenberg Center, and so many other places we've talked about all stem from this. And yes, I know it's the Judge Rotenberg Center, but it's always gonna be the Rottenberg Center to me. One Mother Jones article reads, the idea that punishment can be therapeutic is not unique to the Rotenberg Center. In fact, this notion is widespread among the hundreds of emotional growth boarding schools, wilderness camps, and tough love anti-drug programs that make up the billion dollar teen residential treatment industry. This harsh approach to helping troubled teens has a long and disturbing history. No fewer than 50 programs, though not the Rotenberg Center, can trace their treatment philosophy directly or indirectly to the anti-drug cult called Synanon. In 1971, the federal government gave a grant to Florida organization called The Seed, which applied Synanon's method to teenagers, even those only suspected of trying drugs. In 1974, Congress opened an investigation into such behavior modification programs, finding that The Seed had used methods similar to the highly refined brainwashing techniques employed by the North Koreans. The bad publicity led some supporters of The Seed to create copycat organizations under a different name. Straight Incorporated was founded by Mel Sembler, a Bush family friend who would become the GOP's 2000 finance chair and who heads Lewis Scooter Libby's legal defense fund. By the mid eighties, Straight was operating in seven states. First Lady Nancy Reagan declared it her favorite anti-drug program. As with the seed, abuse was omnipresent, including beatings and kidnappings of adult participants. Facing seven figure legal judgments, it closed in 1993. But loopholes in state laws and lack of federal oversight allowed shuttered programs to simply change their names and reopen, often with the same staff in the same state, even in the same building. Straight spinoffs like Pathway Family Center are still in business. At least three dozen teens have died from these military style tough love boot camps. And again, I can't blame Synanon for all of it, but they inarguably fueled this fire. They normalized tough love, which to them was just straight up abuse. The idea that there's so many programs stemming from Chuck's philosophy, Chuck, who put a rattlesnake in the mailbox of a lawyer who represented his victims, is mind-blowing to me. 
The tough love approach is a pretty garbage approach in the first place. For many, it sends them deeper into their fears, anxieties, and makes people lash out all the more. Some sources say it can lead to relapse. Others say you should seek out a professional when staging interventions and using any tough love methods. Keep in mind, I'm not trying to say that it's not okay to set up boundaries or that with friends or family members that may be struggling with an addiction. But what I am saying is downright insults, holding someone hostage, demanding they quit cold turkey and those aspects of tough love that Synanon promoted can do far more harm than good. Again, I'm not at all a professional. I'm just reading a kind of generalized overview from all of my sources here. Don't take this as legitimate professional advice. Seek that out if you need it. I'm just a pyramid that really just doesn't wanna see anyone suffer because of a rehab facility that really messed things up. But with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you enjoyed it or learned something new today. And if you did, make sure to like this episode, follow, subscribe, wherever you're hearing this so that you never miss another one whenever I upload. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Corporate Casket, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.